All right, so in the middle of the night, I felt like the Lord uh, kind of uh, gave me a nudge and said, I want you to read this verse to my people. It's from 2 Chronicles 16, and it says this, For the eyes of the Lord roam to and fro over all the earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are fully devoted to him. The eyes of the Lord roaming up and down the aisles, showing himself strong for those whose hearts are fully devoted to him. I wore this sweatshirt, and you probably can't read it, but it's a follow-up to this verse. It's in Hebrew, and it says, you know the word, but it says Emmanuel. And as I was in that middle of the night twilight, I felt like the Lord said, okay, give them the definition of Emmanuel, even though they know it. He says, first of all, tell them what it's not. So Emmanuel does not mean God Almighty, but he is. Emmanuel does not mean God all-powerful, but he is. Emmanuel does not mean that he's the king of the universe, but he is. Emmanuel does not mean the God who forgives, but he does. Emmanuel does not mean the creator God of everything, but he did. Emmanuel does not mean the God who sees, but he does. And Emmanuel does not mean the always God, but he is. But what does Emmanuel mean? God with us. God with us. I want that to sink in because I honestly, from the bottom of my heart, believe that God is up to something today. And whether you're on the mountaintop and you're a bobblehead saying amen, or you're in the valley, God wants to say to you, I'm all those things, but today I want you to know I am with you. I'm in your midst. Draw near, ears open. Amen? So now I'm going to give you my outline because I got too much going on in my head right now. And uh, I'm going to be tempted to go off on some side roads that I will do my best not to do. But if I give you my outline, I feel like you can kind of reel me in, okay? So I want to talk in this passage about what I refer to as the macro and the micro God. And then I want to go into what I'm going to call flashing yellow lights. And then I'm going to end with the good hand of the Lord is upon us. Got it? There is a quiz afterwards. And by the way, I'm told we still have some of these journals left. And you want to make sure to grab one of these because uh, if you're veterans of Matthew, you realize that even though it's a small book, we could be here for a while, okay? And so make sure you grab one of these journals and read along and take notes as you go. So, what is God up to? Oh, yeah, wait, okay. Proverbs 21 says this. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord 
And like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. Now I'm going to talk about the almighty God, the macro God. Daniel actually says God controls the course of world events. He removes kings and he sets up other kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the scholars. Did you hear that? Despite what you may think, God is with us and God is in control. We may look at the horizon and the landscape around us and think, we're in trouble. But let me tell you, God is in control. Now this Friday, we're going to celebrate Veterans Day. And I want to know, if you're a veteran, would you please stand at this time? If you're a veteran, please stand. Stay standing. Please stay standing. Jesus said, greater love has no man, that he would be willing to lay down his life for his friends. Veterans, we thank you that you were willing to lay down your life for us. Thank you. God bless you. Now with that, if we want to honor our veterans, you need to vote. They laid down, they were willing to lay their lives down for our freedom, our democracy, that we would have the ability to vote and to choose. And so, Tuesday, I told Chris I'd give you a list of everyone to vote for, and he said you might not want to do that. <laughs> but please, when you look at your veterans, know this, they served, they were willing, so that you might have the honor and the privilege of voting. So never take that freedom lightly. Let me tell you, I've traveled the world. I've been in a lot of different places. We are still the envy of the world in this day and how God has blessed us. But I truly believe that the times in which we're living, the church, the church needs to understand that God is with us, and that God wants to speak. And just like those verses that I read, I don't care if it's Biden, I don't care if it's Trump, I don't care if it's Bibi Netanyahu, I don't care if it's Yair Lapid. The bottom line is this, the king's heart is in the hands of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. Like Daniel said, God controls. God controls the course of world events. He removes kings. He sets up other kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the scholars. God is not only with us, he is in control. Amen? Amen. Now let's talk about the craziness of God. Okay? We make the statement, God is in control. Who does God choose to use? Think about it. You remember Moses? Moses should have died, right? He was put in what? A, a little basket in the Nile River. But God controls, right? Do you think it was a coincidence that this little Jewish boy ended up being found by the daughter of Pharaoh? Insignificant little boy that should have died, and yet as he's growing up, he's in the household of the most powerful ruler in the land. 
We're told that he actually, in his younger days, was the commander-in-chief of the Egyptian army. Who? Moses. And then we have Joseph. You remember him? Joseph, teenager, had some great dreams and didn't mind telling his brothers all about them, right? And how was he received? The brothers said what? You are a dreamer and we want to have nothing to do with you. That coat of many colors, we're going to trash, right? And Joseph is going to spend half his life growing up, his younger life, where? In a pit and in a prison. And yet this God that says, I control it all, does what? He says, the day's going to come, son, where the most powerful ruler in the universe is going to have some sleeping issues. He's going to have some dreams. And guess what? You are going to ascend to being second in command. And when you're on your chariot, what people are crying out is bow the knee. Who? Joseph. And then we have Daniel. Like that name. Daniel. Daniel is actually taken captive when Babylon is destroying Jerusalem. He's taken captive. And just so you know, this is the PG-13 version, when Nebuchadnezzar took captives, he usually neutered them and led them out naked. Daniel is taken off to Babylon, insignificant, humiliated, the lowest of the low. And yet, the God who says, you know what, I changed the course of rivers, I'm in control, says, Daniel, you're going to be right next to another guy that's having some sleeping dream issues, and I'm going to use you, and you're going to change the course of the world. Daniel. And then we have Esther, right? What do we know about Esther? Believe me, I know we're getting to Nehemiah, okay? But I'm giving you a timeline because now with Esther, we're in the time period of Nehemiah. And who is this girl? Her Hebrew name actually is Hadassah, but who is she? Insignificant, right? She's got an uncle named Mordecai, and Mordecai hears words that there's a guy named Haman that has this idea of wanting to exterminate and eliminate the Jews. And so God does what? He says to Esther, guess what? I'm going to put you in a position and you will save the Jewish people. Do you understand that despite what it may look like in the world today, that God truly is in control? He's behind the scenes. He didn't just create and then take a vacation and pop in from time to time, but that he's involved. He's in the midst of. He's the God that's with us. And he has the ability to take nobodies and turn them into somebodies. Remember that verse? The eyes of the Lord are going to and fro, seeking to show himself strong for those that are wholly devoted to him. Taking nobodies, making them somebodies. Here's a list. I love this. Abraham, way too old to be used. Amen? Jacob, cheater, swindler, 
God could never use a Jacob. Moses, we already talked about Moses, right? What do we know about Moses once he murdered an Egyptian and was taken or ran for his life and God revealed himself to him? You know what Moses said? You got the rope, You know why I say it that way? He couldn't speak. He stuttered. That's what the text says. And Moses is saying, you got the wrong person. Gideon. You know what I like about Gideon? The angel of the Lord appears to Gideon, and you know what the angel of the Lord says to him? Mighty man of valor. That's how the angel of the Lord greets Gideon. And you know where Gideon is at this particular time? It says that he's threshing wheat. You know where you're supposed to thresh wheat at? On top of the mountain. But you know what? Gideon is scared to death of the Midianites, and it says that he's hiding in a wine press, threshing his wheat. And the angel of the Lord comes to this guy that's in hiding and says, mighty man of valor. You see, God takes nobodies and he turns them into somebodies. I can go on. Elijah, suicidal. Jeremiah, young. Let's, let's think about David. Because David is known still today in Israel as the greatest king that Israel's ever had. And even in this day, as Israel longs for a Messiah, the idea is what? Oh, God, can you please bring us another David? Let's think about David. What do we know about him? Heart for God? Yeah. Shepherd boy? Yeah. How about adulterer? And, and maybe what's even worse than that, do you know the story of Uriah? Do, do you realize that David commits adultery with Uriah's wife, and Uriah truly is a mighty man of valor? He's the Delta Force, the Green Berets of the Israeli army. And David does what? David says to Joab, hey, when you're in battle, um, send uh, that Uriah guy out front. Let him be part of the strike force. And then give the command for the rest of the force to retreat. Guess who's murdered and killed on the battlefield? Uriah. David. Not only an adulterer and a murderer, but God can turn nobody's failures into somebody's. And as I said, today I believe that God is up to something. And it's his church, not our church. And as I look out at this body, I'm reminded of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians where he says, consider your calling, brothers, because not many of you were wise. Thanks, Paul. According to the world standards, not many were powerful, not many were noble, of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring nothing the things that are. And as we talked about it, we talked about these nobodies. Last week, Chris ended with the statement about Nehemiah that simply said, who's this guy? 
I am just nothing but a cupbearer. A cupbearer. A nothing. That's all I am. And yet, a cupbearer in the hands of God. A cupbearer who heart is broken and fully devoted to God. A cupbearer who knows, Emmanuel, God is with me. So as a cupbearer, Nehemiah, no doubt, lived in the palace, privy to inside information. All in all, not a bad gig for a Jew living in Susa, right? But when his brother comes and gives him the report, he's heartbroken, which leads to a four-month period of time of prayer and fasting. But as we transcend to this second part that I call flashing yellow lights, we have to ask the question, why did this news that his brother brought back about the condition of Jerusalem affect him so dramatically? because he had never been to Jerusalem. It was over 100 years ago. He never saw the temple that was built, Solomon's temple, and destroyed. All he had ever known is Babylon. And yet... When his brother came to him, sharing with him the conditions, there was something inside of him that cried out because of his heart, because of his devotion. You know, it's interesting, and this is one of those side roads. I'll get back real quick. But it's interesting to think about names in the Bible. You know, names in the Bible have importance, right? They're not just random. And, and when the Babylonians took captive the Israelis, they changed their names. Most of you know that great little story about the three boys, right, that refused to bow. What's their names? Shadrach, Meshach, and to bed we go. That was what I used to tell my kids when they were growing up. Nighttime story. Do you realize Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are not Hebrew names? They're the names that Nebuchadnezzar gave to these boys. Remember Daniel's name? Belteshazzar. Do you remember, as Chris was talking last week, that first group that went back to rebuild Jerusalem, the guy's name was Zerubbabel. Do you know what Zerubbabel means? Born in Babylon. Interesting that Nehemiah, his father and brother, maintained their Hebrew names. And I wonder if they're significant. You know what Nehemiah's name means? One who brings comfort. You know what his brother's name means? One who gives grace. You know what his dad's name means? One who waits on the Lord. Huh. I wonder if that's a coincidence. One who waits on the Lord, and the son, the first son, goes to Jerusalem and sees the condition, and his name means the God who gives grace. And now we're coming to the cupbearer whose name means, my God is comfort. Interesting. And so in the midst of all of this, we have these words. And I'm going to read to you some excerpts from last week's passage. 
The words of Nehemiah, again, the one who comforts. The son of Hakaliah, the one who waits for the Lord. Now, it happened in the month of Chislev. That was now, November, December. The 20th year, as I was in Susa, the capital, and Haniah, one who gives grace, my brother, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile concerning Jerusalem, and they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile, they're in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. Now, just as a reminder quickly, he'd never been there, right? Never seen pictures, didn't see Instagram, didn't see anything. It would be like his, somebody came in and said, you know what, My, your, your grandfather immigrated from Germany to the United States, and you know what I've heard is that his village back in Germany has been destroyed. And if you're told that, you might say, oh, that's a shame. But you'd never seen it. You'd never been there. But something about Jerusalem in the heart of Nehemiah, his world's rocked. Because now he's getting this report. And what does it say? As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel and your servants. And then, as Chris said last week, it ends with saying, and I was a cupbearer for the king. So this week, we'll probably have it up here now, I want to read our eight verses for this week. I needed you to understand that context. So now, what is Nehemiah to do? I hope you sense that it wasn't, I feel bad that Jerusalem's a mess, but something in him was activated. It was a vacuum, and he couldn't get over it. He's prayed, he fasted, and then we read, in the month of Nisan, by the way, that's March, so from what I read to where we are is a four-month period of time. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, I was before him, and I took up the wine, and I gave it to the king. Whoops. And I was in his presence, and the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. And then I was very much afraid, and I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you would send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, and the queen was sitting beside him, how long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me 
to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I should occupy. And then it ends with the words, and the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. This was no small thing for Nehemiah after four months of praying and fasting to go into the presence of the king. You have to understand the protocol of the cupbearer. The cupbearer would have been privy to inside information. You were not required, you were not allowed to be sad or depressed in the presence of the king. Why? Because that might be an indication of your dissatisfaction with the king. And the cupbearer was responsible for what? In those days, the number one cause of death of rulers was poisoning. What does the cupbearer do? He's not some random guy that they pulled off the street and they said, we're having a big banquet tonight. Go drink the wine and we're going to wait around and see what happens to you, sort of stuff. No, he's inside. He's trusted. And, and even because I mentioned Esther, I want you to understand the protocol of going before the most powerful king at that time. Do you remember when Mordecai comes to Esther and says, there's a plot, and you need to go tell the king about it, and what does Esther say? You don't understand. I don't just go in to see the king unless his scepter's raised and so what does she say? You better get everybody to pray and fast before I do this. Do you understand that it wasn't a light thing for Nehemiah to be going into the king, and yet the king notices what? The despair. Something's up. And, and this is where I want to talk about what I'm going to call a flashing yellow light. Because... In, for, for me, I'm not going to say for all of you, but for me, I'm a ready, I'm a red light, green light person, okay? If, if God brings me to a stop and he wants to say something to me and I'm starting to sense he's got something in mind for me, the next light that's going to show up on that stoplight is green and I'm running, Okay? In Israel, I find it interesting, but in Israel, the stoplights are different in Israel. Here, they go red, green, yellow, right? In Israel, they go red, yellow, green, yellow, red. Significance? I think these yellows indicate you might want to spend some time thinking this through. Because not only is God the God of the macro, but the micro God as well, right? You probably heard it said, God, not just the devil, but God's in the details. And far too often, when God stops us, and he begins to say, this is what I want to do, we don't spend four months praying, fasting, seeking his face. We just sort of run on out. And I believe that God is up to something. And while I was gone, I found it interesting that God raised up prayer group here. Find it interesting. Because I know I don't look it, 
But I've been walking with Jesus for about 50 years. You probably thought, at birth? You, you knew Jesus at birth? No. Um, but back 50 years ago, churches usually had two services. They had their Sunday worship service. Now, many of them would have home fellowships. That's what they were called back then. But you know what the other service was that they had? They had a prayer meeting. Interesting. The devil understands the importance of prayer. What he wants to do is get us as far away from that as possible. We can fill our time up with worship, which is great, right? We can fill our time up with the study of God's word, which is great. But because we all have such busy lives, what usually gets pushed to the side? And you know that every major revival that's ever taken place all has the same origins. And if God is up to something, which I think he is in our day, that one constant in all major revivals is that the people of God began to pray. When I look at this event in the life of Nehemiah, when Nehemiah is sitting there undone because of this burden, he spends four months praying and fasting. And what's the results of this? Well, first of all, when he goes to the king, he realizes his life could be in danger, right? I could be killed for this. But he decides, I'm going to pray that God gives me favor. And so when he goes to the king, he explains to him the situation because the king notices. He goes, you're not sick. What's up? This is sickness of the heart. You better speak up, Nehemiah. And what does Nehemiah do? He answers a question with a question. Smart move. Because he's going to level the playing field. And he says to the king, well, what would you do if you had heard that your ancestor's home was ravaged, that the graves of your forefather were torn apart? What would you do? Now, we've had this prayer time of four months where I believe, I, I would call that, that sort of marinating prayer with yellow lights flashing. You don't get the impression that Nehemiah just shot up a prayer saying, take care of all this, God, amen. But it was something that he couldn't get out of his system. And it drove him to being with God. So once he determined, I need favor or I could lose my life, he's got courage to ask for that, right? And then what does the king respond by? The king says what? He basically says, you got a time frame? How long are you going to be gone? That tells us quite a bit, I think, about Nehemiah that he was a friend, a trusted person. And the king in the midst of it, his heart, because remember the macro God, remember the verses I read in the beginning, that the, the God of the universe sets up kings, changes their hearts. And all of a sudden, in the midst of all of this, because of his prayer and his fasting, God inserts himself, and the king says, what's your time frame? And Nehemiah now understands, oh, God's given me favor. He's answered that prayer. He's, we use this phrase all the time, he's opened a door. What's the next step when God opens a door? I call this a flare prayer. Basically, now that that door is open, Nehemiah says, oh, God, please help me because I'm stepping through. 
Too often, we pray that God opens doors, and he opens doors, and we sit there thinking, I need confirmation, okay? Uh, I know it seems to be open, but it, it could be a trick. Maybe I'll, and I love this, maybe I'll set a fleece out sort of stuff. And I got a feeling more times than not, God says, I'm so sick and tired of those fleeces. Just go through the door, you know? <laughs> I've opened the door. Go. And so here, what does Nehemiah say? Nehemiah doesn't just say, thanks, appreciate that. I'm glad and go. I'll be back in a couple months. But he says, no, um, not only do I need favor, and I need you to send me. I kind of I need, you know, we live in a bad neighborhood. And, and I kind of like the palace. I like Susa. But when I go outside those doors, it, it's not a short trip to Jerusalem. It's going to take me some months. There's a lot of baddies out there. So you know what? I would like you to send me with some letters. Because if I got that letter stamped with Artaxerxes on it, I'm good to go. And the king even takes it a step further, we read further on down in this book, that he not only gives him papers, but he says, I'm going to send an entourage with you. So let's look at this. He spent four months praying, and I think this is the God in the details He's praying that God would give him favor, and God does. But he doesn't stop there. He's praying, open the door. And, and um, you know, as I was thinking about this and praying about this and fasting about this, uh, can you send me some letters so I can have protection? But he doesn't stop there. He goes on to say what? Oh, by the way, um, you need to foot the bill, okay? So uh, I, there's this guy, his name's Asaph, and he's the head of the forest in Jerusalem. And by the way, when I get there, I'm going to need wood. I'm going to need timber to do all of this work. And so what does the king say? Again, the king says, no problem. The, the point really of all of this is to understand who's in control, that the God of the universe can take nobodies and make them somebodies, and that when God's up to something, he requires his people not just to shoot up a prayer, but possibly to spend time in the details of what that is. Because I believe that God is doing something here at Anthem, I believe that God's calling us once again to a flashing yellow light. I believe that God is calling us to be, to discover, to grow in our prayer lives, both individually as well as corporately. As an elder, we have a meeting tomorrow night. One of the things that we're going to do is to set a date, but we believe that since God is up to something, that we need to spend time praying more. So we're going to take six in the morning to seven in the mornings during the midweek. You'll get more information on this. And we're just going to open the doors at our building at 7th and Wallace, and we're going to invite you to come and pray with us. Again, yeah, we can pray anytime. We can pray over our food. We can do this. No, this is on our face prayer. This is hungering after God prayer. This is God, you need to guide us and lead us. We've got big decisions we need to make we need to hear from you. God, we need your favor. God, we need your resources. And God, we need you to protect us as we step out in these areas. 
And I don't want to do any of that unless I know that we've spent that time, like Nehemiah, in the presence of God. So that's our invitation. At this time, I'm going to have the, the worship group come back and join us. So what does it mean to be in prayer? What is prayer? Far too often we look at prayer and we just think of it as a creative ways to make our requests known to God, right? And even if we're benevolent and, and thinking of others, we're going to use prayer as what? intercessory. I'm going to pray. I, I know that somebody is having a surgery or somebody is going through a difficult time, so I'm going to spend time praying for them. All of that is great. But at the heart of what prayer is, is that the eyes of the Lord are going to and fro throughout the earth seeking those whose hearts are fully devoted to him. Prayer, James says, if you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Jeremiah says, you're going to call upon me, you're going to go and you're going to pray to me, and I will listen, and you will seek me, and you will find me when you search for me with all your heart. When Haggai was prophesying to the people, and he was telling them, be faithful, be strong, and finish the work that's in front of you, he had a thus saith the Lord. You know what those words were? Thus saith the Lord, I am with you, saith the Lord. We don't want to go anywhere. We don't want to do anything unless we have the assurance that he's with us. At the end of this verse 8, Nehemiah just blurts out, and the good hand of the Lord was upon me. The king most powerful king blessed, gave, protect a cupbearer. Why? Because the good hand of the Lord was upon him. So now we look at what's in front of us. And of course, I'm reminded of Jesus. And he's with his disciples. And he's going to say to them, there's a red light here, boys. I'm up to something big. You know what? You 12, you're going to turn the world upside down. And these teenage boys are probably eyes wide open. What? He goes, yep. By the way, take your shoes off. And Jesus wraps a towel around about him and he kneels at these boys' feet and he starts washing their feet, right? And he gets to Peter and Peter says, no way, you ain't washing these feet. And Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, you got no place, you're not a part of me. You know what Peter says? Don't stop with the feet then. I'll take the whole thing, you know? I could use a good shower sort of thing. But the point was, is that Jesus was saying, it's a red light. I'm going to equip you because you know what? Yeah, I'm all powerful. Yeah, I'm the resurrection in life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm with you. And, and I'm going to gift you and I'm going to prepare you because there's a yellow light flashing, guys, you're not ready yet. And I want you to come to this altar and I want you to remember me. 
And by the way, you still need an injection of the Holy Spirit before you run out there and start changing the world. You need to spend time in my presence. And for us today, spending time in his presence, remembering him, I think means coming to the altar and receiving his gifts. And what are his gifts? A body broken and blood shed. Why? So we can be a part of him. So we can remember him. So we can be empowered by him. Why? God's up to something. And who's he going to use? Us. He'll take nobodies and he'll turn them into somebodies. Just watch. I get goosebumps when I'm thinking about what God's going to do here at Anthem. I really do. I think God's going to do incredible things. But I think it's required that as that yellow light's flashing, we commit ourselves to being with him. Amen? So we're going to sing, we're going to worship, and we're going to invite you forward to come for communion. And as you come forward and you partake, let me say, as you partake, in my mind's eye, I'm hearing those words, and the good hand of the Lord is upon them. The good hand of the Lord is upon you all. What gifts he's given us. As we come, as we worship, we'll have a prayer team up here. If you'd like prayer, we've talked about it. Don't walk away. Parents, our communion table's open to all who love Jesus and who've received Jesus as their Lord. Parents, it's up to you to determine your children, okay? Your choice. So with that, let's pray, worship, and receive. Jesus, thank you for this passage. Thank you for the God that comforts. Thank you for your power. You're in control, the macro God. Jesus, we sense that you're up to something here in Anthem and what you're doing. And, and you're calling your people to come out to the deep, to deepen our walk with you. And we see that as our commitment of spending time with you and drawing close to you. Be with us, Lord, and thank you for your gifts. Jesus, thank you that you died, that you shed your blood, that we can be clean. Thank you for your forgiveness and thank you for your empowerment. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.